The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, Happy New Year to all of you here. Thank you for being online with us. We're so glad that you've joined us online for this New Year celebration at our church. We're beginning a new year. I love New Year's. Actually, New Year's is one of my favorite holidays, but not for perhaps the reasons you're thinking, not because of the parties and the revelry and all of the fun that is had on New Year's Eve. I, I, I was never much into that, even when I was young and had a lot of energy and was almost expected to do those things. It just wasn't my scene. It wasn't my thing. Uh, I love New Year's not for all of the revelry and the parties. I love New Year's actually, and I'm going to show what kind of a nerd I really am. I love New Year's because of the resolutions. I love doing New Year's resolutions. I spend the two weeks before New Year's working on my New Year's resolutions. If you want to know my eight-step process for creating godly and New Year's resolutions, uh, y'all are laughing, I'm seriously, I have it. It's, it's, uh, you go to my blog, Five Feet Away, and in the search, in, the search bar, you punch, punch in New Year's resolutions, and up will pop an article about, about New Year's resolutions. Punch in the, the search uh, bar, annual goals, and you'll have my eight-step process for creating annual goals, detailed how to do that, how I do that, and it's not the only way to do it, but it's how I do it. If you want to know, I love the process of creating New Year's resolutions because for me, New Year's is kind of a time of reframing. It's a time of rebooting and restarting your life in, in some ways. We get this kind of a vacation time to rest, to think, to reflect, and then the New Year starts almost, for me, it seems like a clean slate. New Year's is an excellent opportunity then for God to bring transformation to your life. It's an excellent opportunity at this new year time for God to do something new and something different in your life. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about reframing and rebooting and restarting and what God has for us as a church and as people, as his people, for this new year's uh, time. Uh, And to do that, I want us to go to scripture and we're going to start at the beginning. The book of Genesis um, and this, this idea of new beginnings and what that looks like for us and how God can bring transformation to our lives in this time of new uh, beginnings. And we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2. It is the very tail end of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, but it ends in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And this is what the word of God says. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our vision as a church is to be a church full of people who are bringing healing and wholeness to our community and beyond, even as we are being transformed by Jesus. And so as we begin this year, understand that that is our vision. That's what we want to be, each and every one of us. We want to bring healing and wholeness everywhere we go in this world, even as we ourselves are being transformed by Jesus. I want us to take some time at the beginning of the year to dig a little deeper into what it looks like for you and for me to be transformed by Jesus. What do we mean when we say that? I want to dig a little deeper that. And to do that, I want us to look at this new beginning 
Genesis, this beginning, the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, and it spills over into chapter two, um, this creation account. There are two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. The first is in chapter one, and it is a macro view of creation, a a 10,000 foot view, if you will, of the creative process as God is creating the universe. The second creation account is in Genesis chapter two, and it is a more of a micro view of creation uh, where the, the lens zooms down in and focuses primarily on the creation of the man and the woman and the first marriage relationship. So you have these two views of the same creation story, but two different views, one from a macro view and the other from more of a micro view of creation. And it is the first one that we want to look at today, the first creation story. It's a story that, that takes a look at creation from the, from the 10,000 foot view, from the mountaintop view. God is creating the universe and everything that is in it. And it is the famous seven days of creation. In the first six days, he creates the universe and everything in it, every living creature, every living thing. And the culmination of his creative process is on the sixth day. It's the creation of human beings, of the man and the woman. It says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he sets the the man and the woman apart from the rest of creation in the fact that they are created in his image and that also they are given uh, the responsibility of caring for the rest of creation. And then after he's done all that, Genesis reports that on the seventh day, God rested. So because God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day, and because we are created in his image, it naturally follows then that we too are to follow that same divine pattern built into the DNA of creation, this same pattern of six days of activity, six days of work, six days of labor, six days of creating and fashioning. And then on the seventh day, we're to rest. Now, there are two things that the scripture says about that seventh day. Very, very important. I don't want you to miss it. Two things he says about the seventh day. The first is, it says that he blessed it. And the second thing he says is that he made it holy. He sanctified it. He made it holy. I want to talk about that for a bit. First, it says that he blessed it. Now, there are three blessings in this first Genesis uh, creation story. There are three blessings, three times God blesses. The first is that he blesses all living creatures. And the second, he blesses the man and the woman. And on the third, he blesses the seventh day. But the third blessing, the one I'm talking about, the blessing of the the seventh day is different than the other two blessings in that he is not blessing something that is alive. He's not blessing a creature or a human being. He's not blessing a living thing. He's actually on this last blessing, he's blessing time. He's blessing, in particular, a certain unit of time. He is blessing not the people who are in the seventh day, but he's blessing the day itself. So that in this scene, what God does is he not only has brought all of living of the living universe under his sovereign rule. Not only is everything that he has created in the universe, every living creature, every living being, being, including the man and the woman, have all been brought under his sovereign rule. 
And on the seventh day, he brings something else under his sovereign rule. He brings time itself under his sovereign rule so that even time is under God's glory, under his rule. Now, you don't have to live long to know that everything changes, doesn't it? I love talking with people. I was talking with someone the other night, uh, people who have been in, in this area, in Dallas, Richardson, who've, been, who've lived here for 50, 60, 70 years, right? We have a gentleman, a man in our church who's uh, now, I think, like 101 years old, and he was born into this church. He's been in this church for 101 years. Think about that. That's crazy, right? And when I meet someone like that, I always, I always tell them, well, you've, you've seen a lot of change, haven't you? And they're always like, oh, yes. yes. Some will say yes, and I've been against every one of them, right? All the changes. But yes, change. Change is a part of life. If there's any constant in life, it's that things are constantly, constantly changing. This, this year at Christmas, I did something I do every Christmas. It's kind of become a little tradition for me. I, I go out by myself. I buy myself a Christmas present every year, and, I, and it's shoes. I buy myself a new pair of shoes every year at Christmas. It's just something I, I do. And so I was at the, at the DSW, and um, no, they're not paying me to advertise, but I was, I was at the DSW, and I was buying my, my new pair of shoes for Christmas, and the young man who was helping me, he said, well, what are you looking for, right? In particular, what are you looking for? And as he asked me the question, I was going to answer, and I realized that my, my, the way I buy shoes has changed throughout the years. The kinds of shoes I like has changed pr- pretty much by decades. So that when I was in my 30s, what, I wanted, it, what was important to me in a shoe was, was the designer. I wanted the right designer. It was who made the shoe. I told myself that, it's, that I wanted quality, but really I just wanted the, the design. I wanted you to know that I had a $300, pair, $300 pair of Cole Haan shoes. I mean, just, you know, it was, it was the designer that was important. In my 40s, it became color and style that was important because in my 40s, I really wanted to look like I was in my 30s. And I wanted my shoes to say that, right? Then when I went into my 50s, it was all about comfort. I wanted comfortable shoes. Now, for the first time I go to to the shoe store, I'm in my 60s. I just turned 60. And he asked me that question and I realized it's changed again. And the, the, the number one thing for me in a shoe right now is, can I put it on without bending over? <laughs> right? that's, that's big. He asked me, what are, you, what are you looking for, sir? I'm looking for a shoe that I, can, that I don't care what it looks like. I don't wear color it is. I don't care who made it. Can I just slip it on without bending over? Right? <laughs> it's changed again. Everything in life changes. In fact, Albert Einstein in his paradigm-shifting paper uh, on the theory of relativity, uh, the, the, the thing that was so paradigmatic, was such, caused such a paradigmatic shift is that Einstein was one of the first to question, is time really a constant? Up until that point, physicists had always assumed that time was the one constant in life. And Einstein questioned that. And as it turns out, it's not that even time is relative. That, that there is only one constant in the universe, only one constant in all of life, only one constant in all of eternity, and that one constant is God. 
And here we see God putting even time under his sovereign rule and he blesses it. He blesses it because he can. And then he declares it holy. Now the word holy has a way of throwing us off. I think we're in some ways afraid of the word holy. But the word holy simply means set apart for the purposes of God. Anything, even you, the Bible calls you holy. It says that you are holy when you are, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you're without sin. You being holy simply means that you have been set apart for the purposes of God. Whenever you allow your life to be set apart for the purposes of God, you are being, in the biblical definition, holy. And so what this means, he says, is he takes this unit of time, this thing that he has sovereign control over, and God, he sets it apart for the purposes of God. And I think we struggle with that. In our culture today. In fact, it may be, as I reflected on this, I thought it may be the cornerstone of the downfall of our culture and our society in America. Is that nothing, it seems, is holy anymore. That this, this, this one thing that God has said is, is holy, it's sacred, it's been set apart for the purposes of God, this one thing. Six units of time each week you have to work and to, to play and to do and to create and to enjoy your activity, but this one unit of time is to be set apart for the purposes of God. It's holy. I, I go to a lot of funerals. Um, because of what I do, um, I'm at every single funeral out of the life of our church, unless there's something major that I can't, I go, I'm there. Um, and I thought about that. I've been going to funerals since I was a little boy, uh, because in the Hispanic culture, this is what you do. You, you, you go to funerals. I would, I was remember from the time I was five or six years old, my father holding my hand and taking me to some funeral. I didn't even know who had passed away, but they were friends of the family. And we went, you went to the funeral because here is this, this piece of time that is sacred. It's been set apart this moment for the purposes of God. It's a sacred moment. Someone has passed and you are there to, to enter into that grief with that family. And it's a sacred time. This is what I was taught growing up. And so I grew up going to funerals and I've noticed over the years how fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people go to funerals. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to go to funerals. So who wants to go to a funeral? It's who wants to enter into the grieving process with a family? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to help. It's hard to go Here's a thing that is sacred, set apart for the purposes of God, 
And it's extremely important. I, I, I realized this, and many realized this during the pandemic when we could no longer have funerals. At a certain point in the pandemic, you couldn't gather at all, and so you couldn't have funerals. And I had a cousin, a very dear cousin, who passed away during the height of the pandemic. We were never able to have a funeral for her. And now going back at Christmas, this last Christmas, talking with my cousins, we're the first time we were together since the pandemic at Christmas, and they were, they were, they were lamenting how, how hard it was and they, one of them actually said, I never realized how important a funeral is because we didn't get to have a funeral for her. And that has a way of short-circuiting the grieving process, doesn't it? Because there was never any closure. Here is a sacred moment, and it's an important moment, and it's a hard moment. It's hard to do. And I, I just have this feeling that in our culture, in our society, there are these sacred points, these sacred moments. God has created one of them built into the regular, the regular schedule of your life. It's on six days you work, and on the seventh, you stop. You stop working. And you rest. And this is something God has blessed and something he has made holy, he has set it apart for his purposes. But it's hard to do. It's important, it's sacred, and it's hard. And so in our culture, we, we have a way of, we stop doing it. We stop recognizing it. I know I'm preaching to the, to the choir because you're here, right? But it's hard. And it could very well be the downfall of our culture when at some point nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is holy anymore. And nothing that is too hard to do is recognized. This one day, the seventh day, God said, you will stop you will stop all your working and all your activity and you will rest. Now, this one day tells us something important about God. It tells us something important about the world that he created and it tells us something important about ourselves. I want to give you those things and then I want to just one big takeaway for you as, as we start our new beginnings um, and how God can transform you. This, this one day tells us something important about God. And what it tells us about God is that God is not anxious about, the, about what he has created. God creates everything and then he steps away, he pulls away, he, he takes a step back and he, he rests. Now what is happening in this, in this passage in Genesis is the, the, uh, the writer of Genesis is actually in some ways making a, a comparison and contrast between Yahweh, his God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making a compare and contrast between Yahweh, God, and all the other gods of the Canaanites, and in particular, the God Marduk of, ba- of Babylon. So he's comparing Yahweh God with all the other gods. When you read the literature of those cultures, their gods were always busy. Their gods were anxious gods. And here is this one God, the God of Yahweh, who has created all things, and then he takes time to step aside and to rest. He is not at all anxious about what he has just created. God does not stop to rest on the seventh day because he's exhausted 
as if God is worried that he's, like he ha- his muscles are sore. This is not what is happening in the text. He doesn't stop to rest because he's exhausted or tired. He stops to rest so that he can enjoy. He can revel in. He can admire and love and enjoy that which he has created. You see, he stops to rest because he is at peace with the world he has created. He is not anxious about the world. He is not anxious. Yeah, I, I love, there are certain things I love to do. Um, I, I love, I say I love to do them. I'll say I like writing. I, I enjoy writing and I enjoy uh, woodworking. Two things, my father taught me how to work with wood and I enjoy working especially with hardwoods and, and creating, making things. So I say I enjoy those things, but when I, when I take a step back and really reflect on what's happening, it's not that I enjoy writing. It's kind of, it's kind of hard. It's kind of a pain. It's a discipline to write. It's not that I enjoy writing. It's that I enjoy I enjoy being done with writing. Right? You know what I'm saying? I enjoy the, the product. When I've written something and it sounds beautiful, that happens every once in a while. I've crafted it and I've worked at it and I've recrafted it and I've edited and re-edited and re-edited. Given it to my English major wife who edits it again. And then I'm finished with it. I enjoy that. Some people ask, do you enjoy preaching? I say, I enjoy when it's over. Right? Because I've created something. Woodworking, do I enjoy sanding? No. Do I enjoy all, everything that goes into creating something? Not really, but I enjoy the final product. I enjoy what I've created. You understand, this is what God has done. Six days of work, six days of labor, six days of creating, and on the seventh day, he takes a step back, not because he's tired, but because he wants to enjoy what he has created. He wants to enjoy us. This is what it says about God. And then it says something about the world we live in, and that simply is that the world is safely in God's hands. The world will not disintegrate if we stop our efforts. The world does not, the world does not depend on us to exist, nor our efforts, nor our activity. All the sound and the fury, the world is not dependent on your efforts. The world, the world is dependent on God's promises, not on our efforts. Now I want you to think about that for a minute because I want you to, I want you to experience a kind of a, a relief in that, right? Isn't there a great kind of peace and relief in that? That the future of the world is not dependent on whether or not you mess up, on whether or not you get it right. The, the future of the world is not dependent on how many hours a week you work. My wife Priscilla will tell you that I have a, I have a hard time vacating. Uh, we take vacations. Um, but I have a hard time taking vacations and I have a hard time, even when we take a vacation, I have a hard time really unplugging and vacating, really, right? And being there. I, I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time being away from church. I, I do have, I have a hard time being away from you. It's not easy for me. And Priscilla got to the place where she would, she would tell me this she, to, to kind of wake me up. She would say, look, you act as if you don't go to church. Jesus is going to crawl back into the grave, 
right? Like Jesus is going to crawl back in the grave because you're not there. And the answer, of course, is, buddy, he's not, right? Jesus is not going to crawl back into the grave just because you failed somehow or you messed up or you didn't do it right or you didn't work hard enough, right? And sometimes that's hard for us to remember. So God built into the process. He built into our schedules this time where we take a step back, we disconnect, we vacate, and we, and we realize that the world is in God's hands. And if I stop my activity, if I stop all of my busyness, that everything is still going to be okay. The world is going to be fine. This is the world we live in. It is safely in God's hands. And then finally, it tells us something about ourselves. The Sabbath was, for the ancient Hebrew culture, it, was, it signaled the end, at least for a week, the end of striving, the end of grasping, the end of working for more and more and more. It put a stop to that natural, what can be sinful human activity of always trying to grasp for more, always needing more, always wanting more, of never having enough. And the Sabbath had a way of of putting an end to all of that. And the Sabbath day, by the way, it's also built into this idea of the year of Jubilee, the, the Sabbath at the end of 50 years where all property would go back, right? It's this idea that Sabbath rest is the great equalizer. That no matter what your station in life, no matter how much money you have or don't have, that we all Sabbath the same way. We all rest. No matter what station you are in life, no matter where you come from, no matter where you're going, no matter how high you are, how low you are, that on Sabbath we are all exactly the same. I was on a mission trip a number of years ago to Mexico. And we went to the city that's out in the, in the desert in Mexico, central Mexico, uh, called Torreon. Torreon's a pretty major city, but it's, it's, a, it's a big city, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's nothing. You drive for hours through desert to get to this, to this city. Uh, it's kind of an oasis out in the desert. But we were doing uh, work. We were doing worship services in the little villages outside of Torreon. And so we went to this one little village. I don't remember the name of it, but we went to this little village out like maybe about half an hour outside of Torreon. So it's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's in the desert of central Mexico. Little tiny village. We went there on the Sabbath. And these people are poor. Very, very poor. They live very simple lives. They're laborers, mostly. And I noticed how they celebrated with their whole hearts the Sabbath. That The Sabbath was a big day for them. Those who labor hard. And I would add those who, who have to week, all week long labor physically exhausting kind of work. They understand the Sabbath. They celebrate the Sabbath with gusto, with joy. They get to stop this physical hard labor. They get to stop and they celebrate. And I realized in that moment, the Sabbath is the great equalizer that no matter who you are, you get to rest. You get to rest in God's great care. So here's my big takeaway um, about this. 
the way God takes us and transforms us, that God did something very important in the first six days of creation, obviously. But that on the seventh day, he did something equally important. And I think sometimes we miss this. He did something equally important on the seventh day of creation. The word for rest that my Bible translates rest is the word that literally means to stop, right? to cease, stop. So God says on the seventh day, he says, stop, stop it. Stop, stop your striving, stop your grasping for more, stop your obsessing, stop your worrying, stop your stressing out, stop the rat race, get off the roller coaster for a moment, just stop. I don't have time to go into all of the negative ramifications of stress and anxiety on, on the body. Do I? I mean, go home and Google it. You can read for hours on the negative ramifications of stress and anxiety on the body, on the musculoskeletal system, on the respiratory system, on the cardiovascular system, on the endocrine system, on the gastrointestinal system, on the nervous system. Some of those words I had to write down to remember them. But in all the systems of you, that, that make you you, that, 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 that help you survive, all those systems that are constantly working to give you life, the stress and anxiety has this negative impact on all those systems. So the value of rest, the importance of rest, the importance of sleep, the way, it's much in the way that weightlifting works. We're building up your muscles where you, you're actually tearing up and killing muscle cells as you, as you stress them, as you stress them. But then every good, every person who does weightlifting understands that then you have to take a day of rest. Because on the day of rest, those muscles are replenishing, they're building back up. And then you can stress them again, but then you have to rest those muscles so they can build back up and you get stronger and stronger with this pattern of stressing the muscles and then resting the muscles, stressing the muscles and then resting the muscles, stressing the muscles and then resting the muscles. This is the way your body works. This is the way the universe works. So the first step in being transformed by God is to join him in the, in the patterns he has created for the universe, the pattern he has created for your life, which is six equal units of time of work, of sound and fury, of busyness and of activity, six equal units of time for work and one equal unit of time for rest, to find rest. Join God in the pattern of life he has, he has built into the DNA of our universe for you to be transformed by him. And that is to make this one day out of your long week to see it for what it is. It's holy. You don't make it holy. God has already made it holy. You just recognize that and enter into God's plan, his perfect plan and purpose and pattern for your life. And you will be transformed by the power of his plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, for your love. We thank you for the way that you have created everything so perfectly and the way that you have created us perfectly for your creation and for your purposes.
we recognize, Father, that sin has gotten in the way, our own sin, our, the sin of our lives and the way, that we, the way that we forget. We're such forgetful creatures and the way that we, we ignore. We are creatures that ignore your, your word and your plan for our lives. Help us, Father, this year in 2022 to stay, to stay focused on your word. Help us to, to stay together focused on your word. And Father, we pray for your transforming power in our lives. Help us to find that rest we need in you to replenish, to reinvigorate, to renew. Renew us, Father, every day, every week. Give us your Sabbath rest so that we can serve you, Father, so that we can serve you with power and strength the other six days. Give us your Sabbath rest and help us to stay close to you in 2022. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.